The book of 2 Corinthians is the Apostle Paul's second letter to the believers in Corinth who were being influenced by false teachers proclaiming a different gospel. As a physician cleans and bandages a wound, Paul addresses the contamination of the Corinthians' hearts and applies the healing balm of the gospel. Paul uses their real-life situations to apply gospel truths in real time. The gospel is worked into our hearts, causing us to recognize its deep implications in every dimension of life. We can trust that the Holy Spirit is working to transform our hearts, unmasking our own cultural idols, and recentering our lives around the promises of God. 2 Corinthians. Okay, we're at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and uh, so I want to make sure that you have your Bibles open at 2 Corinthians 3. We're actually going to do the whole chapter. Um, the um, Some parts of this chapter are just a little bit difficult for people who especially aren't used to the Bible, so you'll need to be able to follow along. I'll do all I can to make it clear, uh, but it's an important chapter, and I want to make sure that we get the impact of the chapter, which will come in one verse at the end. Now, you'll notice that I've called it Unveiled, and that'll you'll understand that pretty quickly as we go into the sermon. So, as we learned last week, Paul saw the existence of the Corinthian church as a letter of recommendation for his ministry. The point here is that Paul wasn't bragging about what he did in Corinth, but in fact was pouring out what God did or pointing out what God did in spite of him. That may sound strange for a man with the incredible gifts of the Apostle Paul, but he didn't see himself that way. Paul had accomplished much in his life, but he considered it all dung, and that's a polite word, compared to what God had done in his life. I mean, he was a Pharisee. That's the top of the heap. Galileo, or what's his name? That's right, you understand. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, he was his teacher, one of the greats of his time. Uh, I mean, he, uh, he kept the law in his way. He, uh, he was a, a guardian of the faith. He was actually what we would call a religious terrorist. He did have letters of recommendation, of course, to go to the synagogues in Damascus to arrest Christians, and some of them would die because of their faith in Jesus because of the Apostle Paul. But God stopped him, and everything changed at that time. And so uh, he then realized that all he had accomplished meant very little compared to what God had done for him. And in even the strong statement of the Message Bible fails to translate completely how Paul felt about his previous accomplishments. Follow this on the screen. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8 in the Message Bible. Yes, all the things I once thought were so important are gone from my life compared to the high privilege of knowing Christ, that's the Messiah, whose name is Jesus, as my master firsthand. Everything I once thought I had going for me is insignificant, dog dung. I've dumped it all in the trash so that I could embrace Christ. What a statement. Remember these verses, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says, am I not free? <clears throat> am I not an apostle after all? 
Have I not seen Jesus as our Lord on the road to Damascus when he stopped me and blinded me and then commissioned me to reach the Gentiles? Are you, he's talking to, he's writing to the Corinthians, you remember, uh, are you not the result of, the, uh, of, the, of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. You can just feel his frustration here. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment of me. And of course, there was one particular person and he had some others behind him who were accusing Paul of all kinds of things. So we're going to start at the first verse, even though we covered that a little bit last week. Chapter 3, verse 1, Paul is saying now, are we, he's talking about himself, he's talking about Timothy, Silas, uh, all those that have been in Corinth, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Uh, A different translation of the verse will help a little bit. Are we beginning all over again to produce our credentials? You see, the false apostles had letters of recommendation from some bigwigs back in Jerusalem. Paul is saying that he has no need of such letters because he takes no money and desires no recognition. And besides all that, his gospel has been powerful. Just look at the Corinthians. Now this, I'm going to quote from something that we studied in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, but I want you to realize this is a picture of the culture that the Corinthians come out of. Sadly, our culture is caught up with them. If I don't mean that in a kind sense. So here's, here's where they came from. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Oh, don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or are abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. Holy means to be set apart for God's purposes. You were made right with God Uh, by calling on the name of the Lord, whose name is Jesus and who is the Christ, the Messiah, who came to save us and by the Spirit of our God. God was totally involved. And that's how Paul, that was Paul's credentials. There they are. Look at what they were. Look at what they are now. Now, obviously, the Corinthians were his letter of approval because of how they lived for Jesus. So start at verse 1 again. I want to put your eyes on the page. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter written on our hearts. Now, I was going to use the word written by indelible ink, but nobody knows what that is anymore. So it would be better if I paraphrased it. You yourselves are our letter engraved permanently on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human hearts. This is a picture of Paul pleading with the Corinthians to continue to live their lives solely for Jesus, Paul started the church. His preaching was with Holy Spirit power. 
This church was the only letter he needed. He is, in fact, saying that he is willing to act on their behalf as their father in the faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15. Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I, the Apostle Paul, became your father through the gospel. This is kind of beautiful, really. Paul cared for the Corinthians as much as any parent has ever cared for their children. He was willing to endure any inconvenience, earn his own living, pray for them, even suffer for them. But Paul wanted them to know that what the Spirit did in converting them is far more obvious and of greater importance than any letter of reference Paul could have produced. The Corinthians were not to be religious people trying to keep the law, but spirit-filled men and women living their Christian lives for Jesus because of a renewed heart. This is the picture of the relationship promised by both Jeremiah and Ezekiel. It's called the New Covenant, and I'm going to spend a little bit of time on it in Jeremiah in a moment. But the context is that when the Jews were released from the slavery of Pharaoh into, through the Red Sea and into the Promised Land, it wasn't long until they turned and, and literally turned against God and turned to idolatry. And so something had to change, just trying to keep the rules, just the law wouldn't do it. So in Ezekiel, I picked out about three verses here, uh, it reads this way, Ezekiel chapter 11. It's God speaking through the prophets. So God says, I will give them, the Israelites in this case, a non-divided heart and put a new spirit in them. That's the Holy Spirit. I will remove from them their heart of stone, hard-heartedness, and give them a heart of flesh, a soft heart. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you and I'll remove from you your hard heart, your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. That was a picture of the coming of the Messiah. And when I read that, I think of rules, rules, rules. You know, a hard heart. They need hard-hearted people. Uh, religion need, has rules and we have to keep the rules. The focus of the Old Testament revelation was the law, was the law. But now God is working in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if they were to reject Paul, the Corinthians, as the false teachers had done, they would be rejecting the message of the Spirit of God. Romans chapter 3, verse 20 in the New Living Translation reads, for no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the God, God, the law commands, rules, rules, rules. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. It's a mirror to show us our need for a Savior. Now, now don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the Ten Commandments are not for today or that we should unhitch the Old Testament. We cannot understand the impact of the new without the old. And so... I'm not, again, I'm not saying the Ten Commandments are not for today. And I, I, well, of course they are for today. 
the moral law found in the Hebrew Scriptures is God's standard for flourishing of human beings on this earth. The Ten Commandments are a mirror proving we are sinners in need of a Savior. Paul, the Pharisee, had kept the law perfectly, at least the way they kept score, but no one could keep the law perfectly. That is why there had to be continual blood sacrifice at the temple to appease God. Jesus was the ultimate Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. He was sacrificed on the cross for our sins. His blood, that means his death, confirmed the new covenant, whereas God the Holy Spirit lives within our hearts, making it possible to please God. We are able to please God. William Barclay has this to say, and I find it more convicting than how I'm saying it. So listen to this. There is a great truth here, which is at once an inspiration and an awful warning. Every man and woman, all of us, is an open letter for Jesus Christ. Every Christian, whether we like it or not, is an advertisement for Christianity. The honor of Christ is in the hands of his followers. We judge a shopkeeper by the kind of goods he sells. We judge a craftsman by the kind of articles he produces. We judge a church by the kind of people it creates. And therefore, non-Christians judge Christ by his followers. Dick Shepard, after years of talking in the open air to people who are outside the church, declared uh, that uh, he had discovered that The greatest handicap the church has is the unsatisfactory lives of professing Christians. When we go out into the world, we have the awe-inspiring responsibility of being open letters, advertisements for Christ and his church. Oh, but the good news is, We are all able to be those letters because they are written, they're engraved on our hearts by the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And this is not just for apostles or pastors or missionaries or evangelists or scholars. This is for for everyone who has become a new creature in Christ. That's a great statement. That's from the Apostle Paul. Paul is about to show us where his confidence truly rests. So look at verse 4 now. This is an important verse, verse 4 and 5. Such confidence, that's the important word here, we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. This isn't just a saying to the Apostle Paul. I mean, confidence and competence. This sounds like a self-help recipe for success. But Paul wasn't a self-help person. His confidence and competence were from God, not Paul himself. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, we just studied this recently, Paul wrote, but whatever I am now, it's all because God poured out his special favor on me and not without results. For I have worked harder than all of the other apostles. Now, notice that. I like that phrase. When I first got saved, I was, became part of a, a group of Christians that were, I don't even know how to describe them, super spiritual. God just goes before me. 
Ah, oh, the plane was late. Who cares? God made it late. And it's just sort of like you drive you crazy after a while because I was getting upset when all these things happened. And, oh, we just trust God. And, and, I, and the problem is the words were right, but the, the Paul says, for I have worked harder than any of the other apostles. He put everything into it. Yet it was not I, but God who is working through me by his grace, his unmerited favor that I didn't deserve. So the Bible is full of people uh, we see as spiritual giants, but who in fact are just like us. Actually, God uses people who don't really seem to be very capable to show his power. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. This is really good. We now have this light, that's the light of the gospel, shining in our hearts. But we ourselves are like fragile clay jars. What a picture. We're fragile clay jars with this powerful light in it. We're dust people. We're clay people. So we're fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. You know, reading books can change lives. And reading biographies will do more to inspire you to live daring lives than any other category of books. The Bible is made up of biographies of unlikely people who we still are learning from today. People like Jonah, for instance. Jonah was given a direct message from God, go and preach to the Ninevites. He hated the Ninevites. What did he do? He ran away. What did God do? He made a big, great fish and swallowed them and spit them out, and everybody got saved. What a picture that is. They can use Jonah... And if he can survive being swallowed by a great fish, we call it a whale, but anyhow, it just says a great fish in the Bible, then we can, he could use any of us. There's so many good examples. Hudson Taylor, he wrote many wonderful books. He was an amazing missionary in China, and that's an understatement. But here's what he said about himself. He said, God chose me because I was weak enough God does not do his work by large committees. He trains somebody to be quiet enough and little enough and then uses him. It's amazing how powerfully God has used so-called ordinary people to do extraordinary things. I wonder how many of you know who Harriet Beecher Stowe is. She was 85 years old when she died in 1896, 1811 to 1896. She wrote a two-volume book about the evils of slavery called Uncle Tom's Cabin. If you haven't read it, you must. She wrote it after having a vision in a small church during a communion service. 300,000 copies were sold in America the first year without any Amazon reviews at all. <laughs> I mean, it's absolutely incredible. You know, and, uh, and that was just in America. And uh, I had a copy. The copy I read of the book was dated 1907, and it said right on the book that up to that point, over 3 million copies had been sold, and Amazon still wasn't around. Tolstoy, the author of War and Peace, an incredible book, 
said it was one of the greatest achievements of the human mind. He said of her book, this one book ultimately ended slavery in America. Here's what Harry Beecher Stowe said about it. I, the author of Uncle Tom's Cabin? No, indeed, I could not control the story. I wrote. It wrote itself. The Lord wrote it. And I was but the humblest instrument in his hand. It all came to me in visions, one after another, and I put them down in words. To him alone be the praise. Oh, oh, wait a minute. That's, That's only the beginning. She wrote so many books that in 1896... Uh, a 16-volume work was published called The Writings of Harriet Beecher Stowe, and she was a mother with seven children. I mean, who knows what we could do if we stopped looking at our circumstances and inadequacies and impossibilities and may God our total resource. I read my utmost with his highest, Oswald Chambers, every morning. I've already read it this morning. And it's on Facebook if you want to read it. I already put it up. And uh, I've been doing that for years, actually, literally, ever since I became a Christian. More people have read his devotional than any other devotional in the world. The biography of Oswald Chambers is appropriately called Abandoned to God. Oh, what a book. He was 43 years old when he died. 43 years old. Here's just something that he wrote. Uh, God can achieve his purpose either through the absence of human power and resources or the abandonment of the reliance on them. All through history, God has chosen and used nobodies because their unusual dependence on him made possible the unique display of his power and grace. He chose and used somebodies only when they renounced dependence on their natural abilities and resources. When he died, he left behind a wife and a child, and they were basically penniless. So she uh, sold his book. No, no. There have been no book written. She put together all of the notes that you read. That's his wife did that. She was asked to put together notes because people were so amazed at his teaching, they wanted to know more. She put them all together, and then the rest is history. So we are all called, all of us, of God for a purpose. So let's answer the call. I made a list. I've done this before, and so there's lots left out, I'm sure. But here's a list. Missionary. Sunday school teacher, now listen, when I first became a Christian, the first thing I did is hand out in the church that I finally was saved into, it took me a little bit to get to it, Uh, I handed out at the coming in the door bulletins and stuff like that uh, to serve the Lord, and then I signed up to become a Sunday school teacher. I mean, these kids were so fortunate, a stockbroker is going to be their Sunday school teacher. (laughs) I was terrible at it. It terrified me. I mean, I I taught eventually almost every grade in Sunday school, and I learned so much about the Bible because these little kids asked questions all the time, and I didn't know the answers. I am so glad that I did that. 
So here's the list. Missionary, Sunday school teacher, greeter, small group leader, nursery worker, sheepdog ministry, daily prayer, nursing home uh, ministry, uh, one another friend, discipler, musician, administrator, husband, wife, grandparent, child. The point is our life is our calling and we should expect God to use us in ways far beyond our abilities and comfort if we depend upon him as our resource. So now, Paul points to where his ability comes from, verse 6. This is really something. Verse 6. He made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. That's a very important word for us to understand. Not the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills. What it really means, it convicts and it it causes us to realize how bad we are. But the Spirit gives life. In Romans chapter 3, verse 10, we read what is an obvious statement. As the Scriptures say, he's talking about the Old Testament Scriptures, no one is righteous, not even one. So the new covenant gives us life. Now, we do communion here on Wednesdays once a month and on the Sunday morning services uh, once a quarter. I encourage uh, those in home fellowships to occasionally do it. Uh, it's important that we never forget to remember the cost of our free salvation. And in the book of Luke, uh, at the Last Supper, we all know about the Last Supper. That's the, that's the last meal that he had together uh, with Jesus, with his disciples, a Passover before he went to the cross. And the Luke twenty two twenty, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it says in the same way, after the supper, Jesus took the cup. There were several cups during the meal, and they all had a meeting. And this last cup is the new covenant in my blood, meaning that's a picture of his death, which is poured out for you. The disciples didn't really understand what he meant by that at that time, but they come to understand it. When we do have communion, and if I'm leading it, I always use 1 Corinthians 11.25. And in 11.25, the Apostle Paul writes the same thing. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup, saying this cup is the new covenant. A covenant is an agreement between us and God that's ratified by a blood sacrifice. And so he says, this is the new covenant in my blood, in my death. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And again, the key word here is new covenant. Now, when I was being discipled by my pastor back in North Park Community Chapel so many decades ago, the first memory assignment was to memorize a whole bunch of verses in Jeremiah chapter 31. And so I did that. But we're just going to use a few of those verses. I'm using a different translation. And here it is, Jeremiah 31 32, 3, and 4, this covenant, remember this is Jeremiah, it's God speaking through Jeremiah the prophet hundreds of years before Jesus came. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt, took them out of slavery through the Red Sea and all of that. They broke that covenant, though I love them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. 
But this is the new covenant I'll make of the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instruction deep within them, and I'll write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people, just like Ezekiel said, and I will forgive their wickedness, and I'll never again remember their sins. That's a picture of our salvation. We now have a new heart. And you've heard me say this so many times. We no longer have to sin. We are free not to sin. Oh, we'll still sin. And 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness uh, because we still have a sin nature and we often give in to it, but we don't have to. But every time we do, we can confess it to God and he forgives us. But as we grow in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we learn that our sin nature no longer actually has control over our lives unless we let it. We are no longer condemned under the law which was designed to lead us to Christ. Actually, the New Testament says that in the book of Galatians. Paul wrote in Galatians 3.24 that the law was our guardian. The King James Version says schoolmaster. Some of your versions would say tutor. I would say teacher. So the law was our teacher until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only way to heaven. But we are now free in the Spirit who causes us to live a life that is a letter written by Jesus himself. We are a letter written by Jesus himself. There is no one who can't be used greatly of God. Nothing in our background, nothing prevents God from using our lives in significant ways. In the book of Ephesians, Paul starts out with chapters 1, 2, and 3 showing us who we are in Christ to try to give us our full identity. And then assuming we understand that, he starts in chapter 4 and uh, 5 and 6, and here's some of what he says. He says, Since you have heard about Jesus... And have learned the truth that comes from him. This is what we're to do. Throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. In other words, he's saying, turn from that. Repent of that. Don't do that anymore. Stop it. Stop it, he's saying. Instead, he says, let. That's the key word here. Let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. We're to stop doing the things that we know we shouldn't be doing, and then we're to let the Spirit renew our thoughts and attitudes. How do we renew our thoughts and attitudes? By memorizing the Scriptures, by reading the Bible, by listening to sermons and obeying what the Word of God says, uh, by being one another people. We're to let the Spirit renew our thoughts and attitudes, put on your new nature, create it to be like God, truly righteous and holy. That's possible because we have the Holy Spirit living in us. We have a new heart, a new ability to obey God, which we didn't have before. Dr. Christian Barnard, uh, when I was a young man, everybody in the world knew who Dr. Christian Barnard does. Does anybody here know who he was? There's a few, yeah. Dr. Christian Barnard, he did the first ever transplant human heart transplant. It was huge news. And he did it when I was 20 years old, December 3, 1967. And you go, 67, 77. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
He did it in a hospital called the Grootscher Hospital in Johannesburg, South Africa. The patient was Dr. Philip Blayberg. Uh, Dr. Bernard asked Dr. Blayberg not long after the surgery, he said, uh, would you like to see your old heart? So they went into this room in the hospital where they have all kinds of specimens, and there was a jar, and there was some fluid of some kind in it, and there was the heart, and he handed it to uh, Dr. Uh, Blayberg. And it says that he just stared at it for a long time. And then he said, so this is my old heart that caused me so much trouble. And he handed it back, turned away, and left it forever. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting at verse 7, going to verse 11. Um, I'm going to read this with a, uh, from 7 to 11 with just almost no comment in the New Living Translation. If you have a New Living Translation, you can follow. If not, it'll be on the screen. The old way with laws etched in stone, led to death. Though it began with such glory that the people of Israel could not bear to look at Moses' face. For his face shone with the glory of God, even though the brightness was already fading away. So let's stop there for a minute. Let me just explain why he's saying this. These are people that understood the law and all of the things about the law, even people that weren't, uh, weren't Jews understood this, but Paul is writing to a, a, a people who understand this whole story. Moses went up in the presence of God, and the Ten Commandments were written on stone, and when he came back down, his face was shining with the glory of God. It was just the most amazing thing. And then, of course, the people had ended up turning to already to making an idol and everything while he was up there. But when he started to teach the people, he would go into a tent and he would come back out with a veil on. And the reason some people say, well, I guess they couldn't look at him because of the glory of God shining. No, that wasn't the reason. The reason was that he discovered that the glory of God didn't remain. It would, it would disappear. And so he put the veil on so they couldn't see that the law or the glory of God was disappearing. It's, it's metaphorically a picture of the fact that the law is going to end. And so we go on here, and it says, shouldn't we expect far, shouldn't we Christians expect far greater glory under the new way now that the Holy Spirit is giving life? God is within us. If the old way, which brings condemnation, because that's the purpose of the law, was glorious, how much more glorious is the new way which makes us right with God. In fact, that first glory was not glorious at all compared with the overwhelming glory of the new way. So if the old way, which has been replaced, was glorious, how much more glorious is the new which remains forever? This is very important to understand. Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly. So uh, we already talked about it. We need the moral law. It's still thou shalt not murder. is still thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. is still thou shalt shot, commit adultery. But Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly, and now we're under the new way, which is the way of the Spirit. So Paul is saying that if Moses mediated the glory of God through the law, whose authority was fading away or ending because of what Jesus did, 
If that is the case, then it seems silly to stick with the law that condemns, kills, when we have the gospel of Jesus Christ who brings eternal life. Therefore, look at now look in your Bibles again. You'll all be able to look in your Bibles again at verse 12 as we finish off here. Verse 12. Therefore, since we have such a hope, this isn't a hope so hope, but a hope certain hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Now stop there and I'll explain that. When I was an atheist and going around using the Bible to try to show people that there is no God and this is all made up book and a silly book and all that kind of stuff, uh, I read the Bible. I knew several Bible stories that I would use that I thought proved Jesus was kind of a wacko of some kind. And then I confessed my sin and turned to Christ. And the one incident I've mentioned it so many times, but I've never forgotten it. It was just very emotional for me to even think about it. Valerie wasn't a Christian yet. So I wanted her to know what the Bible really said, so I decided to read 1 John to her. 1 John. I couldn't do it. I'd just start to cry. Why? Because the veil had been taken away. When I was saved, God had ripped that veil off and opened my eyes. That's what this is all about. And even to this day, when Moses is read, in verse 15 it says, even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. They don't understand it. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, verse 17 is one of those great Bible verses. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That's an incredible... We just sung a song that actually said that. And then in the final verse, 18, and we all who with unveiled faces, Christians, contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed. Now, that's an incredible word. It's the word metamorphosis. It's a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. That's how big a deal salvation is. And so, and we all, verse 18, who with unveiled faces contemplates the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image, into godliness, with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It's an amazing thing what happens when one is saved. So what can we do now? We can take off the masks and be who we are becoming. That's what we can do. We are not fading away. We're becoming more and more like Jesus. This is Paul's point in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, where Paul <laughs> writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if you've had the veil ripped away, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. I love the word creation. God has recreated us, spiritually speaking. We are totally new now. And so when I was reading the Bible after uh, getting saved, it just astounded me what it meant. The very stories that I used against Christianity were now convincing me without any, with absolute certainty. It was, absolute, it was amazing. We're a new creation in Christ. So salvation is far more 
than just an escape from hell. Salvation is freedom from slavery to sin. We no longer have to be controlled by sin. 2 Corinthians 3.17 reads, For the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And in the words of Jesus, John 8.32, And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So the convicting question that we all must ask ourselves, and I must too, am I reflecting the glory of God in the way I am living my Christian life? Will those reading my life letters see the Lord Jesus? That's the convicting question. But let me state the obvious. The reason we reflect the glory of God, the reason we're changing, is that we spend time daily in the presence of the Lord, reading the Bible and praying, looking outwardly to love and serve those God puts in our paths as we gather together to worship the one who removed our veil. So Paul has proven, finally, his ministry is from God and is triumphant and glorious and eternal, and he'll not be dissuaded by anyone. And the last verse, the last verse, 2 Corinthians 4.1. Therefore, since God in his mercy has given up his new way, we never give up. I, I want to read it in a different translation here. That uh, I was just, This was just in my quiet time this morning, and I thought I've got to read it in this. I love reading the Tyndale Living Bible. It's not a translation, but it was written by a dad so his kids could understand the Bible. Chapter 4, verse 1. It is God himself in his mercy who has given us this wonderful work of telling his good news to others, and so we never, ever give up. Father, I just thank you so much for the wonder of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Father. Uh, Father, it's been a, a, an amazing week, and, and I'm so glad that I was able to spend time, Valerie and I, with Kim before she went to where you are. <laughs> but she was like that. And Father, as I sat in that room after with her husband and her son and Vicky, her friend. People were coming in constantly asking how we were, but you could tell that they were almost happy to come into the room because they had seen Kim's story written all over her. What a wonderful reality her faith in Christ was. I don't know, Father, I can't imagine I could have handled all of the terrible surgeries and stuff she went through, but... She handled them with grace. Help us all to be like that. In Jesus' name, amen.